0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to Surety Clean's professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright-Coswell-Skeed in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, not for much longer, we're about to uh, move, I guess, in October from Baltimore to Towson, which is a suburb of Baltimore. In any event, as per usual, I'd like to start my episodes with uh, a big thank you to all of our listeners and supporters of Surety Today. And uh, remember, you can listen to any one or all of our prior 84 episodes of Surety Today, anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms, Surety Today uh, page on our website, wcslaw.com. There's a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today, uh, and it will come up. Uh, and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. Last month, we exceeded uh, 10,000 downloads of our podcast, so that's something, I guess. Thank you for that. In the last uh, episode, I was uh, live from Asheville, North Carolina on a road trip with my daughter, relocating her to Austin, Texas. We survived the trip and uh, she's all moved in, new apartment and all that. But on this thing, I had the weirdest thing. I, it, was, it was some kind of allergic reaction that hit me in Nashville. Uh, the middle of the night, I was asleep, 3.30 in the morning. My tongue started swelling, lips are tingling, red welts, the whole, the whole thing. You know, I'm 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 almost 59. I've never had an allergic reaction to anything. I have no idea what was going on. Somehow, I, I remembered that they were selling Benadryl in the lobby of this hotel, so I went down in the middle of the night and bought that. And the clerk's like, "Well, let's just add that to your room. What's your name?" And I'm like, "Fala." I could I could hardly talk. So I was sitting in the lobby uh, on the fence about whether to call an ambulance or not, and uh, and the Benadryl started to work. So. I don't know, I I I, uh, I saw an allergist and I've got an EpiPen. The, th- the scary thing is I, I don't know what it was, so I, have, I don't know what to avoid. So uh, we'll have to figure that out as I go forward here, I guess. But as always, uh, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise. We'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Um, today, I'm gonna talk about the common obligee theory of subrogation. The funny story, uh, quick story on that, uh, one year at the ABA FSLC midwinter meeting in New York, I, I participated in a presentation on this topic, and it, it was the start of an election year, the one between Trump and Clinton. So my, my co-presenters and I decided to do a, a campaign deb- debate format for the presentation. Uh, despite my misgivings, I, I had to dress like Donald Trump with a wig to get that whole, you know, Trump comb look, you know. Uh, I had to be Trump because my co-presenters were Kim Zapp and Kim Zanata, so neither one of them would you know, would have been able to pull Trump off. Uh, I, I like to call them Kim squared, but they shot that down the first time I said it. Anyway, we're in this big ballroom at the Waldorf. Kim Zanata was the moderator, and Kim Zapp was Hillary Clinton, and, and there was Kevin Liebeck in the front row with his iPad recording the whole thing, and I was thinking, great, this is going to haunt me forever. However, through some miracle, I found out later that there was uh, some technical glitch and Kevin wasn't able to save the recording. So uh, there is no video proof uh, that it ever happened. So enough of my story. Let's, uh, let's dive right in and get to the business at hand. So uh, under the common obligee theory, a surety may, under certain circumstances, assert its subrogation rights in order to exercise the obligee's set-off rights against the principal. To recover funds, the obligee would otherwise owe to the principal under other unrelated bonded or non-bonded contracts. Obviously, uh, using the set-off rights to extend the surety's reach beyond the bonded contract may help reduce the surety's losses. Under the common obligee theory, the surety steps into the shoes of the obligee and is entitled to assert any rights that the obligee may possess against the principal, even on other contracts. A simple example demonstrates the point. So you've got an obligee and a principal, they enter into two contracts. Contract A, let's say to build a school, contract B to build, let's say a shopping center. School project, contract A is bonded by the surety, contract B is not bonded. The principal completes the shopping center, contract B project and is owed $100,000 by the obligee. But then the principal defaults on the school project, contract A, and the surety steps in to complete contract A. The surety is paid all the contract A funds, but incurs a loss of $100,000. Because the surety performed and completed contract A, it is subrogated to all rights of the obligee with respect to the principal. In this example, one right that the obligee would have if the surety did not perform is the right of set off between contract a and contract b and, and you know it really helps to think about this situation if you assume the fact pattern but pretend that there was no surety in the scenario in that case the obligee would have completed contract a on its own and the obligee would have incurred that hundred thousand dollar loss and would have said to itself hey i i owe the principal hundred thousand on contract b but the principal owes me $100,000 on contract A now because I had to complete it. So I'm gonna offset the two amounts and keep the $100,000 owed on contract B to cover my losses on contract A. And the principal gets nothing, but the principal would no longer owe anything either. When the surety is present in the scenario, same facts, the surety simply does what the obligee would have done. Using its subrogation rights, it collects the $100,000 on contract B to offset the surety's loss on contract A the contract i mean the concept rather is uh, is simple enough in theory and it serves to further the purposes of both subrogation and setoff however in practice it's not quite so simple some courts have recognized and allowed the, the common obligee theory and the examples uh, include travelers casualty insurance company of america versus Padurda, that's out of the northern district of illinois hartford fire insurance company versus us out of the court of federal claims Transamerica Insurance Company v. U.S. Uh, out of the, the Federal Circuit, uh, InRay Larbar Corporation out of the Sixth Circuit, District of Columbia versus Aetna Insurance Company, the D.C. Court of Appeals, USF&G versus Housing Authority of Town of Berwick out of the Fifth Circuit. And there have been a number of articles written on the subject and, as well. But on the other hand, some courts have rejected the common obligatory theory under various facts. In, in part, these courts have rejected the theory because they take an overly restrictive view of subrogation and hold that that the surety's subrogation rights are limited solely to each bonded contract and the bonded contract funds of a single contract. In other cases, the surety was seeking to use its subrogation rights arising from payment of payment bond claims, and such subrogation rights were held to be insufficient. So uh, there's a number of there's a variety of those cases out there. Uh, and and we'll talk about some of that later. To understand the issues relating to the common obligee theory, one must first understand the two fundamental keys to the theory. The first is the the right of subrogation, and the second is the right of set-off. If there's there's not much more, really, that, that I can say about subrogation than what I've said before in these podcasts and what we all know from being in the industry, it's well established that a surety who pays the debt of another is entitled to all the rights of the person he paid to enforce his rights to be reimbursed. That's straight out of the Perlman v. Reliance Supreme Court case. The remedy of equitable subrogation thus allows a performing surety to step into the shoes of the benefited party. The right of subrogation is not founded on contract, but is a creature of equity. It is enforced solely for the purpose of accomplishing the ends of substantial justice and is independent of any contractual relations between the parties. When the surety completes the performance of a contract, the surety is not only a subrogie of the contractor and therefore a creditor, but also a subrogie of the obligee and entitled to any rights the obligee has to the retained funds. If the contractor fails to complete the job, the, uh, the obligee can apply the retained funds and any remaining progress monies to the cost of completing the job. The surety is liable under the performance bond for any damage incurred by the obligee in completing the job. On the other hand, the surety may undertake to complete the job itself. In so doing, it performs a benefit to the obligee and has a a right to the retained funds and remaining progress money to defray its costs. The surety who undertakes to complete the project is entitled to the funds in the hands of the obligee, again, not as a creditor and subject to set-off, but as a subrogee having the same rights to the funds as the obligee themselves. Uh, One of the rights that obligees have is the right to set-off, to apply the unappropriated monies of its debtor in its hands in extinguishment of the debts due to it. That's the quote from the Muncie Trust case. It is further recognized that a performing surety through its equitable right of subrogation may exercise the set rights of the obligee. The restatement uh, at 281 c uh, states that the surety subrogation rights reach any interest in property of the principal obligor against which the obligee's rights can be enforced. So there's nothing in the law of suretyship or subrogation that would prevent the operation of the common obligee theory. And so you've got subrogation as one of the keys to the theory and there's really no reason why subrogation wouldn't apply in the ordinary course to a common obligee theory scenario. So, so now we need to spend some time and focus on the right of setoff. Uh, the better, you know, we understand, uh, we, uh, the better understanding rather we have of of setoff the better off will be in identifying and advocating for the commonology theory. In discussing set-off, one court noted that the venerable right of creditors to set off debts dates back to Roman and English law. The right to assert set-off can arise by statute, by common law, and by contract. In its simplest form, set-off is the right between two parties to essentially net their respective debts when each party owes the other an obligation. Set-off rights exist between two parties when each party is a debtor to and a creditor of the other party. The definition of set-off rights is that between party A and party B, party B has the right to set off against party A's claim one or more independent transactions that constitute separate causes of action apart from party A's claim. This can occur only when the two parties' rights are mutual. That is, between the same parties in their own rights and capacities, and the amounts owed to each are due and payable. And we'll talk more about mutuality in a minute. A set-off is not a part of a debt. It's an equitable remedy to secure the payment of a debt. The Supreme Court has stated the right of set-off is a common right, which belongs to every creditor, to apply the unappropriated monies of his debtor in his hands in extinguishment of the debts due him. The objective of letting a party exercise its set-off rights is to prevent a security of actions by allowing parties that owe each other money to apply their mutual debts against each other, thereby avoiding the, quote, uh, absurdity of making party B pay party A's claim when party A owes party B on another transaction. Thus, set-off is a, a matter of common sense. A person should not be compelled to pay one moment that which he's entitled to recover back in the next moment set off does not occur automatically, rather it must be exercised through affirmative actions and providing notice. Typically for set off to apply, the claim being set off must be liquidated. For example, in one case, the court held a a petroleum trader could not set off its intentional tort claim against the the amount it owed the other trader because the tort claim did not constitute a liquidated debt. It was merely a claim that had not been reduced to a judgment or a settlement. Courts have observed that set-off occupies a favored position in our history of jurisprudence with which courts should interfere only under the most compelling circumstances. The Second Circuit has stated that the rule allowing set-off is not one that courts are free to ignore when they think application would be unjust. The Ninth Circuit has noted that the primacy of set-off is essential to the equitable treatment of creditors. Absent a set-off, a creditor is in the worst of both worlds. It must pay its debt to the debtor in full, but may only be entitled to receive a tiny fraction of the money the debtor owes it. One question, um, you know, that sureties wanna make sure we've got the answer to is, is, does the United States government have the right to set off? It is well established at common law that the United States government, like every other creditor, enjoys the right to claim set off. Thus, the United States can assert a right of set off independent of any statutory grant of authority to the executive branch. The government's common law right of setoff, which is inherent in the federal government, is characterized as being a broad right. In addition to the common law right of set-off, various federal statutes and regulations also provide a basis to the federal government for set-off. For example, the tax code allows the IRS to set off taxpayers' overpayment of tax against tax liability for prior years. Federal agencies may refer past due debts to the Treasury Department for offset Uh, Under 31 U.S.C. 3716, the government's set-off right is codified uh, in the administrative offset statute. The federal acquisition regulations, the FAR, provide that the United States can set off obligations between itself and parties contracting with the United States. So, of course, uh, there are many many other examples of statutory um, uh, empowerment of set-off rights for the government. In order for set-off to be available, as I mentioned before, there there must be mutuality between the parties, i.e. both parties, both obligations must be held by the same parties in the same right or capacity. In the same part, if the same parties are involved, but they stand in different relationships in the various transactions, the mutuality uh, would not exist and set-off would be impermissible. So for example, if party B as a trustee owes a debt to party A arising out of party B's breach of fiduciary duty to party A as the trustee, and party A owes a debt to party B personally under an unrelated breach of contract, let's say, uh, there's no mutuality because party B's obligation arises in his capacity as a trustee, not in his individual capacity. Similarly, mutuality is lacking where, uh, let's say, a partnership has a debt against an individual but the individual has a debt against only one of the partners. Uh, an officer, director, shareholder of a corporation, you know, those are not the same as the corporation itself. Thus, there's no mutuality if the corporation has a debt against the party and that party has a debt against only the corporation's CEO or its president. In the surety context, courts have noted that a claim acquired through equitable subrogation can satisfy the mutuality requirement for setoff. Thus, when an entity acting as a surety or a guarantor for the debtor has a claim for reimbursement based on a payment to another creditor, as long as mutuality existed between the parties upon which the subrogation is based, the mutuality is settled uh, is satisfied rather through the subrogation. Similarly, a, a claim obtained through assignment can satisfy the mutuality requirement. One issue to note on the, on the mutuality issue is that the United States is treated as one unified party for mutuality purposes, regardless of the department or the agency involved, and the government can set off claims held by different agencies. This is known as the unitary creditor doctrine in which all agencies of the United States, except those acting in some kind of distinctive private capacity, uh, are single government unit for set off involving the United States. Thus, one court held that the federal government's common law right of set off belongs to the United States, Mutuality is not destroyed simply because a claim arose against the debtor in one agency of the executive branch while the debtor is owed an amount from a different agency. Of course, we see that you know all the time with the IRS popping up. you know, you got a contract with the Army or with the Corps of Engineers or the Navy, and you know, the IRS could pop up and say, wait, we've got set-off rights here. So uh, the issue of, uh, of mutuality of state agencies, uh, there's a split of authority on whether states and their various agencies and departments constitute one entity for purposes of mutuality and set off. Uh, Some courts have held that state agencies are not one entity. Other courts have held that they are in some jurisdictions, the nature uh, of the set off rights will depend on the statutes um, in that particular state. One final note is that mutuality does not require that the debt and the claim be of the same character. Thus, contract claims can be uh, set off against tort claims, for example. Um, I think we should probably mention also the distinction between um, set off and recoupment. Um, As uh, previously noted, set off, of course, is an equitable right of a creditor to deduct a debt it owes to the debtor uh, from a claim it has against the debtor arising out of a separate transaction. Recoupment differs in that the opposing claims must arise from the same transaction. Under the right of recoupment, the claims of each of the parties must arise out of the same contract or transaction. A recoupment is a defense to a claim. It's not a separate affirmative claim for damages. For example, under a contract, party A claims 100,000, but party B claims a recoupment defense under the contract of 50. If both prevail, party B would owe party A the net sum of 50,000. So, the distinctions are that that recruitment arises out of the same contract and is not an actual claim for damages but rather is only a defense so um you know we 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 talked about the commonology theory and 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 what the the, the keys are and and the keys are subrogation and set off and having discussed setoff and subrogation, it seems pretty clear that uh that those those rights exist and are broad and should um allow the commonology theory uh to uh succeed in, in any case. But let's um let's look at uh, uh one of the cases in which the commonology theory was upheld. Uh it's a good case uh, for to discuss because um it it's, it's does a good job of distinguishing a lot of the cases that refuse to uphold the commonology theory. Uh, and it does a good job of discussing in the reasoning supporting the theory. The case is Transamerica Insurance Company versus United States, uh, 989, Fed. Second, uh, 1188 out of the Federal Circuit. Um, In that case, the Army Corps of Engineers entered into two separate contracts with the principal who was the general contractor. Both contracts related to projects at the Fort Bragg um, facility in North Carolina One contract was for construction um, uh, of a commissary. Uh, The other was a contract for construction of an elementary school. Transamerica, of course, issued the payment and performance bonds. The principal defaulted on the school contract. Transamerica, pursuant to its performance bond, took over, completed the elementary school project, and incurred over a million dollars in losses. The principal did manage, however, to complete the commissary contract and filed a claim with the Corps of Engineers for equitable adjustment in an amount exceeding $500,000 and eventually reached a settlement with the Corps. Transamerica, of course, sought the funds owed by the government to the principal pursuant to the settlement. Transamerica gave written notice to the government that it was seeking the funds under the doctrine of equitable subrogation. However, the government dispersed the funds to the principal when you know it. So we have a sort of a, a classic setup. You've got two contracts, the same obligee, the same principle, same surety. You got a loss on one project and a, and a profit on the other. Transamerica sued the government in the Court of Federal Claims, arguing that it had been damaged by the government's disregard of Transamerica's right of equitable subrogation. Transamerica argued that it was entitled to set off its losses incurred under the school contract because the government could have set off any losses it incurred through completion of the school contract against funds it owed to the contractor under the commissary contract settlement. Transamerica asserted that under equal subrogation, it could step into the government's shoes and set off the losses it incurred through completion of the school contract against the commissary funds. Court of Federal Claims rejected the surety's arguments and reasoned that surety's rights and remedies are limited to recovery of retained funds from the contract generating the claim, and that such a result is not changed just because the surety enters into a number of construction bonds with the same contract. Therefore, at the trial level, Transamerica was not permitted to set off its losses against the funds owed to the principal because those losses arose out of a different contract. Of course, Transamerica appealed, challenging uh, the Court of Federal Claims decision. On appeal, Transamerica relied upon a case of District of Columbia versus Aetna Insurance Company that was out of the uh, DC Court of Appeals, uh, which was almost identical to the facts in Transamerica. In the Etna case, the D.C. Court of Appeals held that, whereas here the only claimants to monies held by a government agency are the surety and a defaulting contractor, the surety, who has performed under a public works performance bond agreement, upon full satisfaction of its surety obligation, is subrogated to all of the rights and remedies which the government might have had against the principal had the government been forced to complete the project itself. Among these remedies is the common law right of setoff. Transamerica Court agreed with and adopted the reasoning of the Etna case. The Transamerica Court stated, the general rule is that a surety who pays the debt of another is entitled to all rights of the person he paid to enforce his right to be reimbursed. The Transamerica Court saw that if the surety were not allowed to exercise the obligee set-off rights, the surety would incur loss, and the principal who caused that loss would receive the benefit of the claim payment at the same time on the other project. Further, the court understood that if the surety had not completed, but the government did, the government would have been entitled to set off the amount owed on the commissary contract by the loss on the school contract. Accordingly, the court noted that on the facts before us, we find nothing in the law of suretyship to cause us to favor allowing the principal, the defaulting contractor, to be better off simply because the surety rather than the government completed a contract and thereby incurred damages. The court also noted that if the surety was not allowed to assert the set-off, a surety would rarely undertake to complete a job if it incurred the risk that by completing, it might lose more than if it allowed the government to proceed. What the court was referring to is, you know, if the government had completed, uh, incurred the loss, and set off against the amount it owed, there would be no loss to the surety in that scenario uh, because the government would have been able to recoup its loss on the one job. assuming that the the amount of the loss and the amount that it owed was the same. But if the surety completes and cannot assert the set-off, then the surety suffers a loss. So the surety would, would analyze that situation and would decline to complete to, to avoid the loss. The court observed that it is generally preferable uh, to the government to have the surety complete, and that it is the purpose of the Miller Act performance bond. And the court did not think that the, the by enacting the Miller Act that Congress intended to create a situation in which the surety would have an incentive not to complete. Transamerica court also noted that unlike much of government contract law, the doctrine of equitable subrogation finds its roots not in statutory law, but in the judicial commitment to providing fairness and equity among competing claims. It stated that the equities here strongly support Transamerica's position. Had the government chosen itself to complete the work on the school contract and had it incurred any loss or extra expense in so doing, it clearly would have had the option to set off its claim against the monies owed on the commissary contract. We see no reason to allow the principal to profit at Transamerica's expense from the government's choice to have Transamerica complete the work and we see no reason to harm Transamerica simply because of that same choice. Transamerica court systematically analyzed the, the, and distinguished each of the case authorities that the government and the claims court relied on. Uh, it noted that each of the cases all had elements that were not present in the Transamerica facts, which led to the result uh, of rejecting the common theory in those cases. If you're in a situation you know, where uh, uh, where you're arguing in favor of the common theory, you will no doubt be confronted by the list of cases that were distinguished by the Transamerica case and so it would be a good resource to consult uh, to to you know to be able to distinguish those cases in whatever matter you bump into them in so based on the, the case law there are a number of issues that can potentially affect whether a given jurisdiction will recognize the, the common object theory so, some of those factors are as follows uh, one in jurisdictions where the distinction is recognized between the subrogation rights of a payment bond surety versus a performance bond surety, a payment bond surety may not have the necessary subrogation rights to obtain the obligee set off rights, especially uh, as, to, as to other projects. So the surety has to analyze what is the nature of its subrogation rights in each case. Surety must have a loss on the bonded contract for which it asserts the subrogation rights. In other words, the surety must have subrogation rights. If you don't have a loss, you don't have subrogation rights. So there must be a liquidated loss. A mere claim may not be enough to support set off. The obligee uh, should be a mere stakeholder with respect to the other contract funds. Thus, if the, if the obligee has independent rights against the principal, for example, the IRS seeking taxes, Uh, on this other project uh, that may result in rejection of the common ABIGI theory. Uh, This was a point that the Transamerica Court noted very clearly in its analysis because in that case and in the Aetna case, the government was a mere stakeholder of the funds uh, on the profitable project and there was no competing interest. The ABIGI must actually possess set-off rights against the principal. Uh, There may be contractual or statutory rights that could limit or prevent set-off in a given situation. So surety needs to analyze that issue in each case. The principal does not um, dispute the obligee's rights. If there is a dispute between the principal and the obligee, or whether the principal owes the obligee anything, such as the, such as the principal is challenging the default or asserting change orders, affirmative claims, those kinds of things, those facts may result in the rejection of the common obligee theory, at least until those disputes are resolved. Uh, another thing that you may bump into is, is this concept of a restrictive view of the Miller Act. Uh, in the case of United States uh, x acoustical concepts versus travelers uh, out of the Eastern District of Virginia, the court rejected the surety set-off arguments and held that set-off was contradictory to the purposes of the Miller Act and therefore could not be used by the sure- sureties as a defense. The court concluded that allowing the surety to assert a set-off would delay or complicate payment to the subcontractor that supplied labor and materials. The court noted the purpose of the Miller Act is to you know, ensure the subcontractors are promptly paid, et cetera. It's this type of analysis. You, you see it in cases dealing with pay-of-pay clauses, no damage for delays, dispute resolution clauses. There's a number of circumstances where courts have popped up and said, yeah, wait a minute, you, you can't enforce these these contractual rights because they're going to interfere with uh with the intent or purpose of uh of the Miller Act. So just be aware of that. The takeaway here is that the surety through the common oblige theory may have rights against other funds to help offset losses on the bonded job if the common oblige has set off rights that can be enforced. There are a number of potential hurdles to utilizing this doctrine, so uh it's certainly um it's it's not a given, but it's something that definitely should be considered in cases. I've got a case right now where we are exploring the parameters of this uh, very carefully. Okay, so before I open up the line for any questions, I want to give a shout out to my wife, Elizabeth, because tomorrow is our 36th wedding anniversary, and she is a saint for putting up with me and our seven kids all these years, and I'm a lucky man. So hats off to my wife. It's funny, whenever she sees me preparing for surety today, she always She always calls it Surety Every Day because it seems like I spend a lot of time preparing. But, you know, hey, it's Surety all day, every day for all of us. It's what we do, you know, in the industry. So the next episode of Surety Today or Surety Every Day, if you want to call it that, will be on Monday, August 14th, obviously at 1230. Some upcoming events in the Surety world. Once we, you know, get through our summer hiatus, uh, September 6th through the 8th is the Perlman Conference out in Seattle. September 13th is the uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Luncheon. September 20th through the 23rd is the Northeast Fidelity Surety Claims Conference in Atlantic City, Uh, and uh, our firm is a co-sponsor of that conference, and I think, really, it's one of the best conferences in the surety world. Uh, You should check that out. The the cost is really, really affordable. Go to uh, our Surety Today blog website at wcslaw.com under the uh, Educational Resources, to see a calendar of Surety events. So thank you to everyone for um, joining me today and, and as I say, for your support of Surety today. And I'll open up the line. Okay, I opened up the line. So if there are any questions on this, let's have them. I'm not hearing any questions. All right, well. No questions, Uh, feel free to contact me if you have a question you didn't wanna share with the group, (laughs) that's fine too. Um, Again, thank you everybody and have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable & Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety today.